So programming note. I know in the sheet it says, I'll talk about death, judgment, heaven, and hell. I'm going to flip heaven and hell so we end on heaven, so we end on a high note as we get close to Christmas. So today I'll talk about judgment. Next week then I'll talk about hell, and then we'll talk about heaven. So whenever I think of the last four things, I always think of death and judgment as like two things you have to prepare for. Hell is something you want to avoid, and heaven is something you want to pursue or desire. So that's kind of the ebb and flow. And the next two things, judgment and hell, there's a degree of intensity to them. I think when sacred scripture talks about the day of judgment, it calls it like the day of burning anger and the day of vengeance um, of the Lord, the day of justice, all of that. But I think the key thing you want to remember spiritually is that essentially God has given you all the answers to the test. So he tells you what the judgment will be like. He tells you what you must do to attain eternal life. And then he infallibly promises that he will give you sufficient grace to attain eternal life, especially if you ask for it. And so it's from that notion that Trent can say that anyone who is saved is saved because of the grace of God, but anyone who is damned is damned through their own fault. It's like if you're a teacher and you tell your students exactly the answers to the test. And you tell your students that you will be in your office willing to help them whenever they need help. If your student then shows up and fails, it's on your students, right, as a teacher. I think you would all agree. There's nothing more you could do as a teacher. And so that is really what God does. He promises sufficient grace. Paul says you'll never be tempted beyond your measure. He tells you what you must do to attain eternal life throughout sacred scripture. And then ultimately, it, it's sort of up to you to live in accord with his word. So keep that in mind throughout all of this. So when we talk about judgment, there's actually two judgments. Um, I've realized this is a false notion. Many people don't recognize this. But there is what's called the particular judgment, and there is what is called the general judgment. And so the particular judgment, it's called particular because it's individual. It's between you and God. That immediately follows your death. So if you have the sheet, which I gave you, you can look at number one there under Roman numeral two, a quote from the catechism. It says, each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ, either entrance into the blessedness of heaven through a purification, that would be purgatory, or immediately, or immediate and everlasting damnation. So as Paul says, it is appointed for mortals to die once, and after that, the judgment. So when you die, your soul is no longer remaining with your body, right? Your body will go into the ground. You'll be buried, like we talked about last week, hopefully, right? We'll do it properly. Your soul then appears before the throne of Christ, and you are judged. That is why, and then you go to heaven or hell, or purgatory. It's immediate, and we know it's immediate because when you look at sacred scripture, like the, the parable of the rich man in Lazarus, our Lord talks as if at this very moment in our time, there's already people in heaven or in hell, right? That's why the saints, a saint is someone who's been canonized there in heaven. That's why our Lord can say to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And Revelation 24, then I saw thrones and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I saw also the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word. They had not worshiped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
So there is the general resurrection, which will happen at the end of time, and the general judgment at the end of time. But immediately following your death, you will be judged. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and you will go either to heaven, to hell, or to purgatory. Now, St. Thomas points out that if your soul is in heaven without your body, that's not a natural state for a human being. If you think of what a human is, it's a, we're a body-soul composite. We're kind of this strange creature, right? You have the material world, like animals. You have purely spiritual world, like angels. And then you have humans, which are a blend of the material and the immaterial. So a soul by itself is not fully human. But you still have your identity, because the soul has your powers of your intellect and your will. It has your your ego, right, as the psychologist would call it, has your identity. So if your soul is in heaven, you are in heaven, and you have happiness. But your soul would like to be reunited with its body someday. Because again, it's not a natural state. Your soul persists, but it's not a natural state. And so that leads us then to the second judgment, which is called the general judgment, which takes place at the end of time. And this is alluded to in Acts chapter 1, where it says the angels... Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what they're saying is you saw Christ ascend into heaven. Someday he will come back from heaven. I pointed out this morning when I preached that Advent refers constantly to the two comings of Christ. The first coming was many, many years ago in the Nativity, when Christ took on human nature was born in a stable, he came to redeem us. The second coming, which you will hear throughout Advent referred to especially, listen to the preface before the Eucharistic prayer, it references this, that Christ will someday, the second coming, come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the general judgment. That's the second coming of Christ. So what happens is your soul, which hopefully is in the kingdom of heaven, and your body, which will be decaying in a grave, they will be reunited. Body and soul will once again be reunited. You'll be a fully human person. And then everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I have a whole series of scripture verses that show this. I'll just read some of them. The first one, I have a hope in God, a hope that they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. So what he's referring to with that is the souls in heaven will be reunited with their bodies and pure before the throne of Christ. The souls of those who are damned will also be reunited with their bodies, and they will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Father Strand made a nice point the other day when we were talking about this. He said, do you know how terrible it will be to be in hell, and you think to yourself that you're just going to be once again reunited with your body to once again be condemned? And I said, yes, we should avoid that. That's the point of all of this. It will not be pleasant, right? Oh, you come out of hell just to be damned once again, right? <laughs> Technically, hell is a state. It's an absence of God. So you would remain in that state. But also you have Matthew 25. This is the famous one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so that's the second coming of Christ, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory to judge. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another. That's his judgment as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
So you'll notice a few things there. First, when in doubt in life, go to the right. Always go to the right, because that's where those are saved. If you'll no notice liturgically at Mass, the servers always hand things from the priest's right. It's because of the Last Judgment. You want to be on the right side of Christ. So if the Last Judgment, if you see me going to the left, do not follow me. Go, go right. <laughs> go right. So, Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Body and soul is reunited. And then, he's, as he says, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will once again pronounce judgment. So your first question is probably, well, that seems weird, right? Why have this particular judgment immediately after death and then this communal, this general judgment? But I actually think it's fitting because if you think about sin and you think about righteousness, sin, and the modern world hates this notion, but they're wrong about this, sin is always a communal affair, right? So if you think about it, if I am a sinful priest, then you guys all suffer because I'm not as good a priest as I should be. I won't preach as well. I won't be as good a confessor. I'll pray to God and he'll ignore me. You'll ask me to pray for your family members. God will ignore me because I'm sinful. So you suffer if you have a sinful priest. I think it was John Vianney who said, if, if you want to have a good parish, you have to have a holy priest. There's also the fact that sin sort of dominoes. So let's say I am very, very grumpy tomorrow and you show up to the office, and I, like, yell at you. I just unload upon you. And now, all of a sudden, you're in a bad mood, and then you go and take it out on your kids, and then your kids are in a bad mood, so then they disrespect their teacher. You see, like, sin, my bad choice, my anger, is now creating all these dominoes. So sin is always affecting somebody else. We never sin in isolation. At the very least, even if you're a hermit and you live out in the middle of the Egyptian desert, you are still part of the mystical body of Christ. And so if you are defective, then you are affecting the rest of the mystical body of Christ. It's like if your pinky is sore, it affects the rest of your body. Like, it's just, it's annoying. If your pinky's throbbing, you can't think, right? So sin is always a communal affair. So it makes sense, then, that there is this communal judgment. There's also the sense that salvific acts are a communal affair as well. If you think of Maybe there was someone in your life, like a holy grandmother or a holy parent or a holy priest. Somebody taught you the faith, and they had a positive effect on your life. There's been probably many people throughout your life who have prayed for you, who have maybe pleaded before God for you. So it would be nice if they can see you at the general resurrection and at the general judgment, seeing you as one of the just. They labored for you. It will be pleasant. So again, sin, good works, they're always communal. And so it makes sense, it's fitting, I would argue, that there is the particular judgment for you and God immediately after death, but then there's also this general judgment at the end of time. Now, I should point out, nothing's going to change between the two, right? Because you are judged upon what you did in this life. And so if your particular judgment is bad, the general judgment, it's not like God's going to change his mind because there's nothing new for God. So if you're condemned in your particular judgment, you're going to be condemned in the general judgment. Same thing, if you are saved, you are always saved at the general judgment as well. So particular judgment immediately following death, and then when Christ comes again, we will all appear before the throne of God. Down there on this page where it says purpose, I think the catechism very succinctly gets at what I'm tr trying to say when it talks about the second judgment. It says, we shall know the ultimate meaning of the whole work of creation and of the entire economy of salvation and understand the marvelous ways by which God's providence led everything towards its final end. 
the last judgment will reveal that God's justice triumphs over all the injustices committed by his creatures and that God's love is stronger than death. This was another thing that Father Strand pointed out to me when we were talking about this. He said, you know, the nice thing about the general judgment is you'll kind of get to see like why God did what he did. You know, there are many injustices, many things that happen through life where you don't understand why God is doing what he's doing. You don't understand how all the pieces fit together. It's like if you're watching like a grandmaster play chess and he makes this subtle move and you're like, I don't understand it. And then 20 moves later, it's like, oh, his bishop was in the right place. I'm glad he moved it there 20 moves ago. God does that ad infinitum, right? And so at the general judgment, things which we don't understand yet in this life, things which were like, why, why did this happen to me? Why did I suffer in this way? Why was X, Y, and Z the way it was? You'll get to see God's wisdom and God's providence in all things. So that will be pleasant as well. Okay. So the qualities of judgment, the first and foremost quality which scripture talks about all the time is that it is just. And justice, the virtue of justice, is defined by all the classical and scholastic theologians as giving to each person what is their due. So if you think about the just person, he treats their parents with reverence. He recognizes that his parents are owed that. He treats his neighbor a certain way with a certain dignity. He recognizes that they are owed that. He treats God with great piety and with the virtue of religion. He recognizes that God is owed certain things. And so God, who is infinitely just, will give to each person what they are due. And that's like you see in 2 Corinthians. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. As God says, he gives evil things to those who act evilly. He gives good things to those who act well. Again, our Lord says, see, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. So in scripture, you will notice this. Whenever God presents himself as merciful, he also always presents himself as just. So he repays each one according to their actions, according to how they live their life. There was, in my history, one of the philosophers who had a profound influence on me was a man named David Oderberg. And he had a theory, which I think he was right, and... He said that everyone has this natural desire for fairness and for justice. And I'm vastly oversimplifying his argument, so if he ever listens to this, I don't want him to be like, well, my argument was way more sophisticated than Father Harmon presented it. It's not my point. I don't want to get into the philosophical details. But essentially, he argues that everyone has a natural desire for justice, for fairness. And I've noticed that this is the case like down at the school, like even little kids. If I do something that they deem is unfair or they see something which they think is unfair, they like lose their minds over this. And it's kind of cute, but it's like, oh yeah, it's just innate to the human person. Like, no, we should, we should be fair towards one another. If someone's bad, they should get in trouble. If someone's good, they should get a reward. The kids just get that. And Oderberg points out that we have to then, because this is a natural desire, we have to look for a divine being who will then have some sort of judgment and repayment. Because we know in this life, not everyone gets what they are owed, right? You see this all the time. I mean, holy people suffer terribly. And holy people and people who are good suffer false persecutions. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who had no sin, was put to death on a cross. That was not fair, right? On the same, on the other hand, wicked people, people who do things wrong all the time, they are often seen to flourish. And sacred scripture always tells us don't worry about this because someday there will be recompense. 
And, this, and the judgment of God is sort of this final recompense. Everybody gets their comeuppance, right? You cannot escape the justice of God, whether for good or for evil. I used to always tell the, um, the seminarians and the high school kids when I talked to them that ultimately everything glorifies God. We can never escape that. Everything is going to glorify God. And we will either glorify the mercy of God or we will glorify his justice. So we're better off glorifying his mercy, right? So, last judgment fulfills this natural human desire for justice. What we will be judged upon, our Lord points out, will be our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And this is very, very important because I often see that people don't think that you can sin with your thoughts. You definitely can, right? Jesus, in the gospel, because he's God, he's always seen as perceiving thoughts because God knows the hearts and the minds. And so he accuses the Pharisees, why do you think evil in your hearts? The Book of Wisdom talks about how perverse thoughts separate from God. That would be a sin. Our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his, in his heart, his heart, mind. He talks about the fifth commandment. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So you can sin with your thoughts. Essentially, if an action is sinful, then thinking of that action is also sinful. And people always now panic, right? Because they say, well, we have lots of thoughts that flash through our heads. Of course we do, right? A thought, you cannot sin if it's not willed, right? And so thoughts which flash into your head and you resist or you push away or you don't engage with, those would not be sinful because your will never grasped onto them. They would just be temptations or just certain imperfections in your life. So a thought, like a, an angry thought, is only sinful once the will grasps onto it, once you consent, as the spiritual writers would say, to the thought. So if somebody cuts you off when you're driving and you feel, feel feelings of anger, if you attempt to resist that anger, you try and um, take some deep breaths, try and calm down, then that angry thought would not be sinful. But if you grasp onto it, if you're like, oh, I'm going to chase this person down, or if you like fantasize about like running them off the road and like road rage, then you've grasped onto that thought and it would be sinful. We can also sin with our words. This is always a, a scary verse in Matthew where he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure, and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So you want to learn to think before you speak, right? It's a great mortification. It's also why priests shouldn't preach too long. Every careless word they utter. Finally, of course, we'll be judged by our actions, as Paul says. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we'll be judged on our actions. You should also note that you will be judged for good things that you should have done that you didn't. That's the parable where our Lord talks about 
how we didn't help the poor, you know, when you saw me naked and hungry and you did not feed me. So actions can be both what we, sins of commission, things we commit, but also what are called sins of omissions, things which we should have done, which we didn't. Like a common one would be like teaching your kids the faith, or for a priest it would be all the things I do. I am obligated to do them, give you guys the sacraments, teach, etc. So thoughts, words, actions. Final thing then, well, second last thing, is how to prepare. That's like the main theme of the last four things. So it was like last week, it's like you're going to die, so you have to prepare for it. So you're going to be judged. We know by faith we will be judged at death and on the second coming of Christ. So how do we prepare? And our Lord, he uses various imagery. And I like the one in um, Matthew when he talks about the wedding feast. He says, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who is not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness. Well, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The early Christians, they always saw the wedding robe as like baptismal grace. And so if you do not have baptismal grace, so essentially, you prepare for your judgment by living a good life. You ponder the fact that everything you do, you will be held accountable for. So you're always in the eyes of God. And so then you should live a good life. You should confess your sins if you need to confess your sins. You should develop a relationship with Christ. You should do your best to do good works, to live in accord with the gospel. Then the judgment's fine if you've prepared for it, in the same way if you study for a test. It took me a long time to figure this out. The tests were way easier when I studied than when I didn't. It took me 22 years to figure that out. Same thing, right? The judgment will be fine for you if you live a good life. If you've confessed the sins you need to confess, the medievals always had that great line, everything you tell the Lord in the confessional, you won't have to tell the Lord at your last judgment. Same thing, you live in accord with the gospel. Everything will be okay, but you have to do that. You have to prepare. And if you don't, if you act wickedly, if you reject God, if you live in accord to your own desires and not in accord with his will, then you will be repaid justly and it will not be pleasant. All right, there was one other thing, two other things actually I wanted to mention because they come up. The first is the rapture. So, the traditional understanding of the rapture, I forget which page because I didn't label my pages, but number six, the quote from Thessalonians, I think it's on the second page, talks about the rapture. It says, for the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, And with the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So the traditional understanding of the rapture, and as far as I know, it's like traditional up until like the 1800s. And the way that virtually all the early Christians and the medievals would have understood it, and the way in which I think sacred scripture presents it, is that all the rapture refers to is if you think of the second coming of Christ, right? I said, if you're in heaven or hell, your soul and body will be reunited. Obviously, there will be some humans living on earth. And so the humans who are living on earth, who have not died, their souls and their bodies are not separated. Those who are saved, who will be among those on Christ's right hand, will be seized and lifted up and essentially follow Christ in glory. They will come with the angels and the saints They will be lifted up from the earth. That's the traditional understanding of the rapture. All the stuff about 
like a period of tribulation and some people are left behind, that is really, really foreign to what I would consider like the traditional understanding of the rapture. And it's also really, really foreign from scripture because scripture, as Paul just says, it doesn't separate the rapture from the second coming. It happens at the second coming. And the only people who would be raptured are those who are redeemed, who are still on earth. They will go up with Christ. They will come with him in glory, just as all the angels and the saints did. The other thing I want to talk about, if you go to the first page, number two there, there's a quote from Revelation. Then I saw thrones, and those seated on them were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Again, this a thousand years in the early church, and again, like up till the 1800s, the last 200 years have been like novel ideas of theology, which you should be very weary of, because usually they're foreign to sacred scripture. But it was always understood that the a thousand years talked about here is symbolic, and that actually we are living in that symbolic time of a thousand years. Because the way the early Christians understood things was that we are actually in the end times. And we've been in the end times ever since the Pentecost. The end times is the time of the church, when the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, which we've seen slowly happen. And so this thousand-year time with Christ reigning is Christ reigning through his church, Christ reigning in the hearts of his faithful through grace. The other sort of theories which have arisen in the last, like I said, couple hundred years is this idea that this a thousand-year reign will be like Christ, he'll come again, and then there'll be this radical re-Christianization of the world, and Christ will physically reign for a thousand years, and then we'll have the second coming. Or some will just say there's going to be this radical re-Christianization of the world without Christ physically reigning. Both of those are sort of novel ideas, and they've never really been accepted by the church, because they're contrary to sacred scripture, right? When sacred scripture presents this time of Christ reigning, this a thousand years. It talks about how there's like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Good and evil is going to remain even in the church, which we see, even in the kingdom of Christ, until the second coming of Christ. And then Christ is going to have full dominion. So the way to read the New Testament is that we are in the end times and the kingdom of Christ is breaking into the world through the church and through grace. And as Revelation says, like Satan is bound, that's already happened, right? Satan is bound by baptisms, by exorcisms, by blessings. We've already bound Satan a little bit. But there's going to be good and evil until the second coming of Christ. There's never going to be this radical Christianization of the world where all evil is done away with. There's, Christ isn't going to come a second time and then come a third time. There's only two comings of Christ, sacred scripture. So the 1,000-year period, which you'll hear all sorts of crazy stuff with, is always just understood has Christ reigning through the church, the time we are in right now. So that's pretty much what I have about the particular judgment, the general judgment. I think the main theme, the main theme I would take is don't get caught up obsessing about end times. There's this idea of like, like when Christ talks about preparing for the second coming, he doesn't tell you to like store up ammunition or like the equivalent thereof and brown rice. He tells you to store up grace. Because you have nothing to fear if you're in a state of grace. And the trials and the tribulations which are foretold, again, those have been happening for 2,000 years. The persecutions, those have been happening for 2,000 years. 
When you think about the last day, you should just think about living a Christian life, living in accord with the gospel. I said this in the homily today, that in an ideal world, if you knew Christ was coming tomorrow, you wouldn't have to make any changes to your life. If, you, if that were the case, you would be a saint because you would be living in a state of complete perfection. Because it's like, oh, Christ is coming. That's fine. I'm ready. I'm faithful to my promises. I'm faithful to my state of life. So that's the main theme. Don't get caught, like, storing up 20,000 bags of brown rice. You should store up 20,000 pounds of grace, right, or the equivalent thereof. It'll be fine. All right. With that, any questions? Yes. Probably, yeah. I would guess. See, the, the, soul, the body is glorified through the soul. So essentially, and I'll talk about this when I talk about heaven too, because this is one of the glories of heaven, so I'll go into more detail. But when at the general resurrection, when we all rise from the dead or those who are alive who are caught up with Christ, when the pronouncement of eternal life is given to them, their bodies will be glorified. And it's described as like matter perfected, like the material body perfected. So it will shine in glory. Our Lord says the just will shine like the sun. There will no longer be sort of decay and corruption in our bodies, so like all your back pain, right, will be gone. You won't have to worry about arthritis. It'll be a perfection which is given to us by the grace of God. But it'll be all who are saved, all who are at the, set, the, the resurrection of the dead when the body rises. They will all have a glorified body. On the other hand, those who are damned will be, like, deformed, essentially. Because every time you sin, every time you lose grace, you deform your nature. And you can't see it in this life because it's, like, hidden, right? But you'll see it at the second coming. Then you will see the deformed. But I'll talk about that more with heaven and hell. I'll go into greater detail. Anything else? Yes? So I'm hung up on the, my words. Yes. <laughs> so stop. <laughs> that, that's my advice, spiritually. And like my parents, yeah. So what that falls under is what are you bound to confess? You are bound to confess every grave sin. Um, you don't have to confess venial sins because they don't destroy the uh, sanctifying grace in your heart. You're bound to confess grave sins. Words are gravely sinful when they do serious harm. And so you kind of, you're going to have to make a judgment call here because various things factor into serious harm. If you damage someone's reputation in a serious way, it's a grave sin. And this depends part of on, on your state in life. I've learned this very quickly as a priest. People actually pay attention to what I say, which is a very scary thing sometimes. So I have the capacity to do like serious harm to people's reputation because I'm seen as like a public figure and a reliable uh, figure. So I have to be very, very careful with like gossip and detraction because I can cause serious harm to the reputation of somebody. Before, you know, when I was just a seminarian, everyone kind of figured they should ignore me, which was probably wise back then. And so it was kind of, it was hard for me to gravely sin with words. 
probably my teenage years, I did it against my parents. I said some bad, some kind of mean, nasty things to my parents. Sorry, parents, if they're listening. <laughs> um, so those things I definitely would have confessed. So, you know, if you're worried about it, basically what you told me, just next time in confession, just <laughs> say that. Say, you know, over the years, it's happened many times, I haven't been careful with my words. That's common in the spiritual life. I always say as we get closer to God, we, we notice two things, actually. We notice more and more our own sinfulness because you're getting closer and closer to the one who is holiness himself. And so you see your own sinfulness more and more. And this would crush you, except as you get closer to God, you see more and more his mercy and goodness. And so that builds you up. So what happens often in the spiritual life is as we, we grow in holiness, we think back and we're like, ooh, I've been doing this for a long time, and this is sinful. I just never saw it, right? So it's common, actually, as a confessor, people will say something along the lines of, I've been doing this for a long time, I never really thought of it, but now I've realized this, I shouldn't have been doing this, and I should have been confessing it. So it's totally normal. It's unfortunate, but it's normal, right? Would St. Augustine say, Lord, may I know you, and may I know myself? So... Good. Yes. Could you address uh, at the general judgment when all the things are done or said to be revealed and people would know mm-hmm. at what level would that take place? It's a good question. Uh, my answer would say I'm not entirely sure, but I'd have some guesses. Probably some of it will depend probably on like your state of glory, because essentially and again, I'll touch on this in heaven, the beatific vision consists of like you seeing God, and there's degrees of it. So like Our Lady is going to have a, a more clear vision of God than like I would, and so she will understand in God more than I will. And so Our Lady can probably understand various things, various sins, various ramifications of sin far better than I could. So I think some of it will, be, will depend upon how much God allows. My guess is if you, you will see all the things that like pertain to you. you know? So if you're like falsely accused of something, at the last judgment, you'll see why God permitted that. You will see the good that he either tried to bring out of it and you resisted, or you will see the good. It'll be the same thing, like all the kids, you, all the prayers you said for your wayward children, like you will see all the grace that God tried to give them. And hopefully you see them receive some of that grace, right? But at least you'll know you were heard. Um, and maybe you'll be even more upset at your wayward children then. But um, I'm guessing you will see most of the things that pertain to you. And probably the higher you're going to be in glory, the more you will understand things. Because the more fully you're going to see God and the more fully you're going to understand God. That would be my guess. Yes. Yeah, you, when you go before the judgment seat of God, I think you will, you will see your sins. Because in seeing your sin, you're going to see profoundly how patient God was with you. You're going to see profoundly the graces he offered you, and you're going to glorify God immensely. And that's like the saints, when they get very, very holy, they thank God for like very profound things. You know, like St. Francis de Sales talking, his prayer where he's thanking God for his faith. You realize like how important that was. It's going to be the same thing. I mean, you're going to go before the judgment seat of God, and you're going to be very, very grateful for all the times he forgave you over the years.
years and all the graces he gave you to overcome sin and all of that. So it's going to be this moment, if you're, if you're redeemed, of like tremendous glory and thanksgiving and praise to God. And if you're damned, essentially your own conscience is going to, call, is going to admit it, that it's like, no, God gave you all of these opportunities every moment of your life to be converted and you resisted him. That's not going to be a pleasant thought, so don't resist. Yes. Yes. Americans have a hard time with this because Americans are obsessed with equality. So it's like anytime you say that, like, no, there's going to be degrees of glory, everybody bristles. But it's very, it's very clear, I think, in sacred scripture. The easiest way I've heard it described is imagine, like, various sized cups. So you have, like, your, you know, your, like, big buddy, right, if you're at Quick Trip. Everybody knows I love Quick Trip. So you have your various cups at Quick Trip, right? And, you know, you can get your 12-ounce cup and you can fill it up with your Diet Coke. You can get your 20-ounce cup. You can get your 32-ounce cup. All three of those cups are full but they're not the same size. It's going to be the same thing in heaven. You're going to be perfectly happy because you're going to be filled with joy because you're going to have the vision of God. But there's going to be some like Our Lady who's like a 64-ounce cup, right? And it's going to be like the rest of us, which are like little one-ounce cups. So you're going to be full. You're going to be perfectly happy. And you're not going to be envious of others because you're going to glorify all the things which God did in their lives. You're going to love your neighbor perfectly because you're going to love them in light of God. And so you're going to see the loftier saints and you're going to praise God for all that he did for them. And you're going to be thankful. And you're going to be immensely thankful because you're going to recognize the joy which you have in heaven you didn't deserve anyways. And so you don't have like a claim to say, well, Lord, you should have given me more. It's like, no, you gave me far more than I could ever imagine. And I am perfectly happy with it. Because God calls each one of us to a certain degree of glory. And our job is simply to attain that degree to the best of our ability. And that's that. So, and if you think of it, we kind of already do that in the liturgical calendar. Like, think of All Saints Day. We never sit there and we're like, oh, man, I'm jealous of St. Anthony because he was awesome. No, it's like he was great and he inspires me and he prays for me and all that. And you, you delight in that. So you're going to delight in all the good works which God did, even in the souls of others. There's that great uh, line, I think it's the Litany of Humility. Monsignor Schechterly used to always have me pray the Litany of Humility when I was a seminarian. And one of them's like, something along the lines of, you will hope that your neighbor reaches the degree of glory which God has called for him, called him to, even if it's a higher state than yours. If you loved your enemy perfectly, you would desire him to attain the glory which God wants for your enemy, even if it's higher than yours. Because you would love him in light of God. Shows us how imperfectly we love here. Right? Anything else? Yes. I knew I was going to be asked about this. So I was driving over. I would be very weary of such things. I... I'm extraordinarily weary of anything which is like not in sacred scripture and nowhere in the tradition. 
And again, as I've mentioned before, there's been a lot of like weird ideas with end times and the rapture in the last 200 years. Many of them are Protestant, many of them are very novel. I mean, I don't know. Like, will there be a warning? I would argue that every Sunday at Mass, if you have a good preacher, you have a warning, right? And every time you go to confession and every time you examine your conscience, there's a warning. There's warnings every time the gospel is read. So, like, is there going to be some sort of general warning? I wouldn't think so. I mean, you're not going to find it in sacred scripture. You're not going to find it in the tradition. So I would be very weary of it. I know some people aren't going to like that, but that's okay. I could be wrong. It's a good question. I knew I was going to be asked. I know my people, and my people know me, I guess. Any other questions?